Hello and welcome to the first proper episode of Khaki Malarkey. We're not only excited about the fact that this is our first episode, we also have a cracking interview lined up for you and we are absolutely starting as we mean to go on. So Phoebe, introduce our guest for us. So today we have Paul Crystal, uh, who is a graduate of the University of Hull and completed his MPhil at the University of Southampton. So big up the Southampton squad, I just did my master's uh, degree there as well. Uh, so Paul's the author of a number of works on local and classical history, including Roman military disasters and women at war in the classical world, as well as appearing on BBC Radio, which is super cool. Paul, we really want to start with, if you could tell us a bit about your historical interests, you know, what really got you into ancient and military history? Um, well, obviously, it had something to do with the fact that I did classics at university, um, and then I went into publishing um, for many years and when I sort of semi-retired I thought well what will I do and then I got an opportunity to, to write a book and publish a book so I did that and um, that was 10 years ago uh, but the, the thing that really interested me of course was classical history and so whenever I get a chance to or I'm commissioned to write a book on um, Roman or Greek history then I do it. Um, unfortunately once you started on this sort of journey um it's very difficult to stop because people keep asking you not because you're particularly good in any way but because you're a safe pair of hands and they know they'll get a finished manuscript at the end of the day publishers are lazy i know i was one for 30 odd years <laughs> sounds like you're living the dream well <laughs> i wouldn't say that you couldn't survive on royalties put it that way so you've, got, you've got to have sort of additional income Paul, what was the first book you meant, you said you first written? Well, the first book had nothing to do with uh, classics. It was a, a sort of local history of Knaresborough, where at that particular time I was running the Knaresborough bookshop. And the publisher rang me because the author who was engaged to do it suddenly died. And they asked me whether I knew of anyone who could do it. I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I did it. And it's never stopped since then. Uh, the first classics book I think was Women in Rome um, which um, and that's I suppose that is one thing that did sort of excite the interest in women at war because when you're writing a book about women in Rome one of the things that most books on women in Rome don't do is sort of include the, um, the, the sort of military aspect that some women very few but some women did in fact um, take up and uh, it was that lack of um, sort of general coverage in you know gender books in the classical world that made me think well really someone needs to write a book about women in war so I did. And let's talk about your 2017 book which is kind of what we're going to discuss today and was entitled Women at War in the Classical World and was published by Pen and Sword. Now we're going to give our listeners an exclusive discount code at the end of the podcast where they can get 20% off at the Pen and Sword oh, website. But to be honest, I'm reading it at the moment and it's well worth paying the full £25 for, if I'm yeah. being really honest. So what made you want to write about women in ancient warfare? Well, as I said, I, I'd written quite a few books, I suppose, on gender and women in general in, in Rome and Greece. And as I say, one of the things that was sort of um, conspicuous by its absence was the fact that none of them, none of the other books um, 
treated that subject for one reason or another. Uh, and it seemed to me that, um, you know, because women in war were cropping up quite a lot when I was doing the research for women generally, it seemed to me that uh, there was an imbalance there that needed redressing. And so, you know, it's quite easy to sort of work out that there was a complete book just on women in war only. So I did it. I think that's a great avenue, really. And I think looking at possibly one of the most obvious places to start with this is obviously female warriors. And that was in the ancient world is with the Amazons. So what do we think we know about them? Because you make the point in your book that they're, they are shrouded in myth. Yeah, they are. Um, and that's part of the problem in a way, I suppose, because the one thing for sure that we know about the Amazons is that we don't really know very much about the Amazons and we have to rely on, um, as usual, the sort of um, the descriptions and the um, analyses of basically male historians, not just in the classical world, but in today's um, world, most, not all, but most of the people who write about subjects like the Amazons are blokes and, uh, you know, um, just as in Roman times, and um, it was something that uh, was shrouded in mystery and still is. A lot of, there's a lot of conjecture and speculation about what they were and if they were, uh, but they probably were in one form or another, and um, it's been mythologized to death uh, since then. Um, yeah, so we don't know very much, but what we do know is quite interesting, and as I say, they probably did exist, and they have left their mark in a small way on military history. I just want, following on from that, you mentioned about, um, you know, using other historians, particularly male historians, to go for your research to understand this topic. But other than historians, what other top sources do you use to explore this? Well, yeah, apart from the historical sources, there's a lot uh, in the visual arts. Um, Amazons found themselves uh, quite popular on vase paintings, for example. And you can, if you go into just the British Museum, you'll see uh, stuff there that's got Amazons all over it. Um, they, they, they are represented in um, uh, architecture, for example. Uh, so there's, you know, there's lots of that. Um, epigraphy, they're, they're mentioned in um, uh, sort of, um, um, not tombstones as such, but uh, in, in commemoration stones and such like. Yeah, they're very well represented in, in classical art. Uh, and as I say, but, you know, the, the main source, of course, is historians and poets. And when you're writing poetry, then the world's your oyster. You don't have to be accurate and you don't have to be historical. So. I do really enjoy poetry. I do love using a bit of poetry as a source. I wanted to ask about one particular um, Amazon myth. Now, I am going to butcher the pronunciation here, so please bear with me. But it was um, the myth about someone called Penthesilia. Yeah. So can you tell us some more about her? Well, she, she was quite an important person um, in the Trojan War. Um, and, late, and she obviously get, gets a starring role in the Iliad. Um, and later in, Rome, in the Roman period, she's, uh, she's quite important in the second half of the Aeneid when Aeneas is fighting uh, the, the local Italians uh, to found, eventually found Rome. 
in in the in the Iliad, she um, she's the daughter of Ares, which was one of the uh, war gods. A uh, bit of a buffoon, a bit stupid. No one really admired him. Uh, yeah, quite thick, really, uh, compared to other war gods. Um, uh, but he he she was his daughter. She was the um, uh, she was ultimately um, killed in battle by Achilles. And you know, if you're going to be killed by anyone in Greek history then Achilles is the man for you he's uh, he's top-notch in some ways so she was a very brave and very um, very courageous and um, determined woman uh, the reason why she died was that unfortunately when she was out <laughs> hunting with her sister one day Hippolyta um, she fired an arrow uh, I think it was a boar or a deer um, uh, the, missed, missed the, uh, the deer and uh, hit her sister and killed her. Um, so she was obviously quite upset by this, as he would be, and she determined that um, she would um, she would die herself in sort of uh, self-retribution. Um, so the problem with that was that Amazons could only die in battle gloriously. There was no suicide and no just casual dropping down dead you have to do something quite uh, special so what she did was she um, she contrived that she would meet Achilles in battle um, and fight him and uh, hopefully be killed by him um, that is exactly what happened he slew her quite easily um, she of course had a helmet on she was in full armor and uh, he was sort of um, he was exulting over the, the the death in battle as Greeks do and um, took off a helmet and saw what was a very beautiful woman underneath the helmet and he sort of obviously thought to himself well really I should have married this woman rather than murdered her and uh, you know it's too late by then of course <laughs> she was dead um, and uh, yeah I mean that's that's the story of the myth of Pen yeah. Oh, thank you. That was so interesting. She sounds like quite the woman. Well, she powerhouse. Was, she, she, you know, as the book shows, she wasn't the only one. There's quite a lot like that, and uh, that's what makes the book interesting. That's what made it, you know, interesting to write. Yeah, definitely. Robert Gray's in his his Robert Gray's, as you know, he's famous for his Greek myths and. Uh, well, basically, he made a, quite a lot of what's in those two books up, he, he just just to make it more exciting. And he also wrote a a poem about uh, Penthesilea, in which um, yeah, he sort of sexed it up a bit. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite disgusting, really. He, he in his poem he has Achilles perform necrophilia on uh, Penthesilea. Uh, which is completely contrived and uh, made up, but I suppose it increased the readership of his poetry. Yeah. I guess they must have felt really threatened by her if they went to those lengths to say those well, things about her in that poem. You, you make a good point. Women really did frighten Greek and Roman men in some ways, because traditionally the Greek woman was um, was secluded. She was kept in separate quarters to a large extent. Um, and she was put down in a terrible way 
the Romans weren't that much better, but what, what the two civilizations have in common was that um, women did rise above uh, all of this suppression and whatever. And uh, as in the case that we've just discussed, they did, um, you know, perform warfare and militarism just as good as any man. But sadly, there weren't as many women competents as there were men. Oh, not much change these days. Women, uh, no, men still feel threatened that. by strong women. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 the controversy still rages amongst some quite traditional, traditionalist um, military people. That uh, you know, why do we want women on the front line? And uh, you know, my argument against that is, why wouldn't you? You know, we started with the Amazons and Troy, but there is actually evidence of female warriors going back much oh, yeah, further, much isn't there? So, yeah. Tell us yeah. what we know. In fact, essentially, um, it all started a long, long time ago. Um, yeah, the, the first recorded um, evidence we have of women in battle is um, uh, in ancient Egypt, around about 1560 BC, and that's a long time ago. Uh, this is a, a, a warrior called Ahotep I, who is um, famous for having pulled Egypt together and pacified the South. So she was uh, she was gung ho enough. Um, she was followed by a daughter, Ahotep II, uh, whose tomb was um, excavated, and um, we found daggers and axe blades in there. So uh, she was. Uh, obviously militaristic. Um, the person that we all probably know is Hatchesput, um, who is um, recorded as having led from the front. She was a, a warrior queen. Uh, in the Bible, you've got Deborah, who led the Israelites um, and routed the king of Canaan. Um, uh, a good military strategist, she led the, the, the Canaanites into a marsh um, by deception uh, and then the Israelites just picked them off one by one with their arrows. The Song of Deborah, also in the Bible, she was a tent maker um, and uh, she was getting some undue attention from someone called Jael and uh, she got fed up with it and uh, she also was in the military and uh, she lured him into her tent uh, I suppose if you're a tent maker, that was quite easy. And uh, uh, drove a tent peg into his brain and, and killed him. So that helped the uh, the cause of the armies under Deborah. And uh, they went on to win quite a lot of victories. Um, there's Judith. She was um, um, fighting the Assyrians um, and, and uh, did some undercover work as a spy. Got him drunk. Um, Again, lured him into the tent. They got him drunk and then chopped off his head, uh, which left the Assyrians with no um, no commander in chief. <laughs> oh, these women, you know, there's loads of them. Uh, yeah, and it goes on in, in in ancient India in the Vedic period, around about 1200. You've got um, a, a woman fighter called Vishpal, uh, who was in battle and got a leg uh, severed, uh, but that didn't stop her. She had someone. Uh, make a metal prosthesis leg for her and with a, a new leg uh, as soon as possible went back into battle and continued her military career so yeah there's loads of them 
but I mean, how many of those does the average person know about? Wonder why. None. You've just given me so much knowledge there. They sound absolutely incredible. And also, can I just say the woman, the tent maker, I think that was like an ancient pickup line, like, hey, come back to my tent. (laughs) Yeah, come and see my tent. How effective would that have been? (laughs) Well, Paul, I was just going to ask, why do you think we don't know about these stories? And do you think that is because more women have become researching into it? Oh, very much so, yeah, yeah. In the 70s, it, it sort of took off in a big way. Uh, Sarah Pom- Pomeroy's book, uh, the famous book that she wrote, and she's written many, was uh, Women, Whores, Wives and Slaves by Sarah Pomeroy. That's a brilliant book. That was the first, and it, it sort of spawned a number of uh, other books by her contemporaries and, and subsequent with people like Mary Beard, who popularised the classics and really opened it up to the general public, which is brilliant. Yeah. So, so you'd say we definitely still have a long way to go in learning about women in the ancient world, well, especially oh, yeah, women. Still a, a lot to do, and that'll only happen if more and more books are published, which are by women and which uh, you know cover gender studies in the ancient world. Yeah, is there a kind of a commonality in how different cultures talk about their own women warriors and about other nations and civilizations' women's warriors, or? Is it quite kind of bespoke to each I culture? I think it's probably more bespoke in a way, because I get the feeling, and I don't really know because I haven't researched it well enough, is that, you know, in Egyptian history, the woman is exalted much more. And as you know, it wasn't unusual um, for a woman to be, um, you know, a pharaoh or pharaohess. Uh, same in um, Indian culture, ancient Indian culture the woman was exalted quite quite well. So, you know, certain cultures did have respect for them. And, um, you know, it's just the good old Greeks and Romans who rather grudgingly um, celebrated them. And if and when they did, it's interesting to note that they were of, often compared to men. So, you know, you'd get Tacitus writing about a woman who uh, showed some... Uh, military initiative and uh, he would say well this is just like a you know a bloke uh, this is what a man would do so they were they were sort of sort of temporary women in some ways they were, they were grudgingly allowed the fact that uh, they'd done what they'd done but really it was what men do and that goes all the way back to homer so do you think it's fair to say then that ancient civilizations were male dominated cultures um how did the Greeks and the Romans kind of tackle the idea of women warriors? Well, as I say, they, they, they sort of mentioned it grudgingly. Um, uh, and, and, and when they did do it, they, they compared what the women did, the women's actions or the women themselves to a man um, or a leader, which is the Latin for leader is dux, and that's a, a masculine noun. Uh, I think in the whole of Latin literature, which, which what survives is quite extensive, uh, I think ducks referred to a woman that only happens three times. There, that puts it into perspective for you. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they dealt with it in a grudging way. Um, but having said that, if you look at the early history of Rome, certainly that uh, recounted by Livy, um, you, you, women are, you know, right at the beginning of um, the foundation of Rome and Roman civilization. It's it's people like Lucretia and Virginia 
they're sort of semi sort of semi legendary. Uh, they're there, and they they're, they're, they're tokens uh, of how um, Roman civilization came to be and the the, the values of the Roman civilization. Uh, so yeah, I mean they're there at the start of the founding of Rome and the what's called the conflict of orders, where the plebeians actually got a say in how um, they lived their lives. Um, but yeah. I think we have to talk about one woman who was very notable to the Romans, and that's Boadicea, don't yeah. we? I think the Romans, they obviously hated her. I think, was this an issue for them, or that she was initially quite successful, or was it that she was a woman leading rebellion and therefore potentially more subversive than a male leader? Well, they were probably a bit sort of miffed that uh, they were up against an army that was led by a woman. Uh, it's not as I've just sort of hinted, it wasn't the Roman thing. Uh, women were supposed to be unobtrusive, uh, totally faithful to their husbands, whatever their husband's behaviour was. Uh, and it was not really sort of quite Roman enough to be fighting a, a, an army led by a woman. So they were probably a bit sort of annoyed by that but to put it into a historical context in in ancient britain before the romans it wasn't that unusual to have a woman who was in charge of a tribe um and by a tribe i don't mean sort of uh, uncivilized people you know the, these these english anglo-saxon whatever tribes were quite well organized and to such an extent that the romans did you know rather than battle them they did try to bring them on side um, and you, you have a contemporary example with Boudicca in the um, in a, a woman called Cartamandua, who was uh, who was uh, the queen of the Brigantes, which was the biggest tribe in uh, pre-Roman Britain at the time. And she was what what you would call an ally of the Romans. Uh, and she, you know, she was looked after by the Romans and obviously given money for various things uh, to develop their civilization under the Romans. So it wasn't that normal. And the, the, the Romans would have experienced this in, in Germany, for example, when uh, they were sort of um, uh, conquering uh, the, the Germans and the Swiss. Um, so, yeah, it wouldn't be unusual, but it probably wasn't making them very comfortable. So anyway, she, Boudicca, sort of um, got a bit fed up with the Romans uh, for good reason, because um, the tribe that she eventually became queen of the Iceni in East Anglia uh, had been another client state of the Romans under um, her father. Now when her father died, he, he, he well, the Iceni um, sort of remembered his, his will and in the will it said he leaves uh, the territory to Nero who was the emperor of the day and to um, um, Queen Boudicca and the two daughters. Now the Romans didn't see that small print, uh, typically, and so they said, "Well, we'll take this place. We'll have your lands and we'll have uh, your your tribe and such like." So we're in command from now on. So the Iceni obviously were a bit miffed by this, and uh, for their efforts, for their trouble, um, Boudicca's two daughters were raped, um, and she herself was flogged. So she thought, well, I'm not putting up with this. And uh, she revolted. And that's when you get what's called the Boudican Revolt. And 
initially they did very well you know they they slaughtered a couple of uh, legions they laid waste to london which wasn't as important as it is today uh, she devastated Camaladunum, which is modern colchester and she slaughtered everyone in st albans so yeah she was on a roll but then she got a bit <laughs> a bit contemptuous and a bit sort of complacent and uh, at the battle of uh, watling street um, she thought, well, yeah, here's another victory on the cards. Um, uh, but sadly, she, they were so confident of victory that they got all, all of the people of the tribe and they sort of came up in their, their wagons and carts and basically they formed a circle um, and as spectators. And they were, you know, they were there for a good afternoon's entertainment. But sadly, it all went wrong and they, 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 the native Britons got and slaughtered to a man almost or a woman yeah so that's Boudicca for you but the Romans wouldn't have enjoyed the fact that they were having to take a war to a woman no just a quick warning to our listeners here this next question is pretty grim so if you're listening you might want to fast forward uh, the next few minutes as I say this is a horrible topic but it's important to shine a light on it sexual assault is still in fact um, one of the vile facts of war and certainly was back then and you take the time in your book to devote a whole chapter to this issue how did different ancient cultures think about rape as a weapon because you have different attitudes towards perpetrator and victim don't you well i think there's, 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 sadly as you know what you say is right i mean what what's going on in the yemen republic is is, is, is being airwashed out of um history already even as it happens what happened in Syria quite recently and probably still going on has been sort of um, given short shrift uh, but what went on in you know the 500 BC and even before that is still going on today um, and so one of the things I wanted to make clear in the book was that this isn't you know none of it is gratuitous and it's not sensationalism either uh, because anyone can write a book about the more sort of disgusting aspects of history, and many have, and some of them have made quite a lot of money out of it, sadly. But um, there you go. So what what I was anxious to do was um, to make a point that um, male, obviously, attitudes uh, to women in time of war has been consistently uh, abhorrent. Um, and, and, and to try and do that, I made the chapter on uh, the atrocities of war against women pivotal in the book and putting it as the central chapter in between the stuff on Greece and the stuff on on Rome. Um, and it does, it sits quite um, well there in the sense that, you know, you've read all about the Greeks now. Let us, you know, get a sort of reality check and just put what was going on. Uh, into some context and that's what the, the central chapter is intended to do and if you read it which you may have done you'll find that it is uh, terribly abhorrent and some of the things particularly after seizures for some reason uh, women and children and old people uh, suffer terribly in the aftermath of sieges uh, but you know they did in as they do and have always done they they suffer terribly in the aftermath of war because when the last bullets shot or the last arrow is fired that's not the end of the war for women uh, their their trauma and their 
sort of position in society lives with them for the rest of their lives um and you know it's important i think for people to realize that when we see stuff about um modern conflicts on the telly and such like or we watch films uh, about war um yeah i think it's important that we we, we sort of bring that into the, the the limelight as it were and expose what goes on in war um because there seems to be this sort of unwritten rule which goes all the way back to xenophon in fourth century greece that if a country or a state takes another state then everything within the state that they've just captured or overrun is the property of themselves and that includes women and children it's been a given ever since xenophon that basically you can suspend normal cultural norms and societal norms and do basically what the hell you like and get away with it and we, we see that today still you know how many prosecutions have there been for war atrocities not that many you've got the old one in bosnia but that's about it really yeah and i'm really glad your book talks about it i can it's a topic that's kind of uh, quite close to my heart in terms of research uh, close to my heart in terms of research um and i just wanted to ask you it's quite difficult well, it's very difficult source material to work with and i just wanted to ask if you had any advice to sort of early career researchers um on how how you work with those sources like is there any kind of rules you have on like kind of how much you do or well, what would you really. say no i've had no advice because i haven't asked for any i suppose if i'd asked i would have got it i mean you've got to be as um universal you've got to be as open you've got to be as comprehensive as possible that, that's that's not that difficult these days with the internet and google and whatever there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there uh that you can source but you've got to be very careful about what you do source because some of it sadly is just made up fake news and that goes back to history as well as you know what's going to happen tomorrow it's yeah no it's a constant definitely yeah i mean i sometimes when i'm writing a book i i do get sort of not depressed but i get pretty low mood because some of it's quite terrible as you've probably read and mm. that doesn't sort of give you a spring in your step in any way it sort of does depress your day to some extent i've written a few books now that i've i've, I've left or finished and had published that have left me quite oh god you know quite sort of uh you know unhappy i suppose is the best word for it yeah i think it can be, i think it can be very mentally draining yeah. um, i find it easier to work with like limited uh, amounts of sources in a day just to make it a little bit more manageable because it does take its toll after a while yeah, um, so yeah, so thank you. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me actually in your chapter was that you say that victims of sexual assault were actually shunned oh, yeah. from society. That's what I mean when I say the war didn't end what, for them. What was the thinking there? Well, what, what, there's a number of things that can happen. Um, you'd be raped. Uh, if you're raped, you can get an STI, which may live with you for the rest of your life because some of them don't go away, as we know. Um, you can have a. You can be made pregnant as many were after the second world war and certainly were in roman times and if you may pregnant you may have a child the child will be a lasting living reminder of the atrocity that was perpetuated on you and that will live with you for the rest of your life um yeah all sorts of things um you'll be shunned by 
certainly um, in the Roman period, and, and yeah, there's good evidence for it after that. You'll be shunned by the people in your community and society because you'll be looked down upon in some way and virtually accused of being complicit. Horizontal complicity is called in some areas. After the Second World War, French women had a terrible time for the crime of horizontal um, complicity, as if, you know, they did it willingly of, of their own volition. So, I mean, that, that, that runs through history right up to the modern day. But yeah, there's all sorts of things. Um, yeah, and some were actually mur murdered after, you know, being raped. You know, if that wasn't bad enough. Um, yeah, terrible things. It's um, it's a lasting legacy that no person should have to endure, but they do in spades. Yeah. Well, I think let's get on a bit more of a lighter note. And I'd really like to, as, as interesting and, you know, and as important as we've said, this is a topic to discover and talk about as well. But I really would like to know a bit from yourself about female gladiators. A couple of weeks ah. ago, I went to Pompeii and I learned ah. that there was evidence of female gladiators there. And I wanted to know a bit more from yourself about this. Yeah, female gladiators, all the rage in um, first century AD Rome. Um, uh, they go back a bit further than that, uh, but by and large, they, they reach the zenith uh, in the sort of early empire. And, um, I mean, to, to start off with, male gladiators were regarded as, you know, something that uh, Roman women sort of generally um, uh, are reported as being, you know, they were the pin-up boys of the Roman world. And, you know, there's graffiti and such like about them. And, um, you know, there is evidence, literary evidence, that uh, women went to, you know, to great extremes to ingratiate themselves with gladiators. Uh, but that didn't take long before that sort of um, spread over into to women. And I suppose it started uh, with slaves. Um, and women were sort of coerced into... Um, uh, the, the um, places like the Colosseum and you know the big sort of uh, theatres um, for the games it was games really it was the imperial games uh, where all sorts of uh, again more atrocities took place on a regular basis you'd get up one day in the afternoon you'd go to the you know you'd go to the games and watch human beings being torn to pieces or whatever and uh, all sorts of disgusting things by wild animals and by fellow men so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the games were very, very popular, extremely popular, and people flocked to them in their thousands uh, at times. Uh, and, yeah, uh, apart from being ripped apart by a lion or a bear, uh, you could enjoy, um, uh, as a woman, uh, dressing up as a gladiator and fighting um, dwarves or, uh, or um, people with disabilities would be pitched against you. Um, and yeah, you know, there's all sorts of sexual things that went on as well in front of all of these people. So yeah, women gladiators were all the rage, and the Romans loved them. Even the women, it wasn't just the blokes who were sort of um, enjoying. It was a very popular thing to go and watch. Uh, but yeah, they were there, and um, you know, there's again, there's um, inscriptional evidence, there's um, mosaics, there's um, sort of. Um, vast paintings showing women gladiators, yeah. yeah.
So would it be a case of the women gladiators would be fighting alongside the male gladiators, say, in the Colosseum, or would it be, you know, would they have it separate genders in certain fighting arenas? No, no I think uh, m most of it that we know of. I mean, I'm sure there would have been women fighting women, but the Romans, being the Romans, obviously didn't think that uh, there were, you know, wasn't going to be much of a game, really, was it? If, if a... a, a a woman was fighting a big burly male gladiator you know it'd be over in about 10 minutes and that's not money value for money and you know you'd have a riot on your hands probably so um um what they did they they they, they pitted them against as i say against dwarves um and because uh, dwarves had a terrible time in, in the roman period uh, and um they pitted them against people as i say with disabilities you know one arm or one leg or whatever so that, you know, to give the woman a chance. And, you know, because of the sort of um, the infirmity of the, the opponent and the woman, you'd, you'd get, a, you know, you'd get a good 20, 30 minutes of, uh, of atrocity, which is what people went for. Yeah. yeah, a bit of a love of gore seems to be a common theme throughout history. <laughs> a bit of a uh, horrible history theme there, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, this is probably going to be a really hard question, given all the uh, amazing women we've talked about today. But if you could name one ancient women warrior who you think has been overlooked um, that you could tell us a bit about, who would it be? A uh, difficult question, because there's 257 women, I think, uh, in the book who were, um, they, they were either leading from the front, they were sort of right at the head of their armies, fighting in the thick of it. Um, they were strategists, they were spies, they were in charge of producing weaponry, guarding arsenals, doing all sorts of things. Everything that the modern man does today in the British army, the woman in ancient Rome or Rome's enemies was doing as well. And there's one woman which you may not have heard of until or unless you read the book, is a woman called uh, Mavia. And she was an Arab woman and um she gave the romans this was probably when was it, second or third century a.d so it was quite late into roman civilization and she um as i say she gave the romans a lot of trouble um yeah she you, basically you'd, you'd call her a, a guerrilla fighter because she'd sort of um sort of nip in and out and just aggravate and kill and slay lots of Romans uh, in the desert. Um, she, she's, if you've heard of her, in the Second World War, there was a unit called the British Long Range Desert Group, which was um, quite successful. Uh, and she, she, I suppose, would be the ancient equivalent of that. Uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type of stuff, annoying the enemy all the time, persistently pestering them. Uh, but she was, you know, she was, she was very brave. She, um, uh, she caused a lot of damage. She didn't help the Roman cause in any way. And uh, yeah, she, um, she was quite a pain in the neck for them. So yeah, Mavia has never really got the uh, credit she deserves. In fact, so successful was she that she did something that probably no one, very few um, male leaders have done. And that is that uh, the Romans were so fed up with it all that um, she sued for peace with them. She said, okay, I'll stop doing it. Um, and 
you know, but the peace terms will be on my terms. And the Romans actually agreed to that. And uh, yeah, she got what she wanted out in terms of the territory that the Romans were trying to conquer. She got all the territory back and such like. And uh, yeah, she, she sued for peace on her terms, which is, as I say, unusual generally, but very unusual, in fact, unique for a woman to actually do that sort of level of negotiation with the Romans. So, yeah. yeah, she must have been a very smart woman. Well, she she sounds like she'd be great. We had a question on our prequel episode last week about uh, who we would buy a drink down the pub. And I think I'm going to have to change my answer <laughs> because she sounds like she deserves a drink. <laughs> oh, she knows a thing or two about fighting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, they, I mean, probably most of these 270 whatever women in the book you'd probably have an entertaining evening with. There's a lot of them, as, as you've found out. And... Uh, they do need more exposure. The Romans wrote about them, you know, I mean, the Romans were great for manuals and encyclopedias and uh, lists, because, you know, Romans were very ordered and organised, and the list is a manifestation of that, or the catalogue, or the manual, and they wrote manuals about virtually everything, including vir um, valorous women. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a number of uh, lists of women around the Roman world who uh, were brave and victorious and successful in the military so yeah, it wasn't sort of something that was totally ignored but I think the Romans did a lot more of, uh, of celebrating militaristic women than uh, the whole of subsequent history put together. Paul this has been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for joining us for this yeah, first episode of Kaki Malaki. So everyone, that was the historian Paul Crystal joining us about his book, Women at War in the Classical World. Now, here at Kaki Malaki, we like to give our listeners a discount. You do us the favour of having a listen, so we try and return the favour. So if you're keen to buy Paul's book, and let's be honest, why wouldn't you? You can get an exclusive, oh yes, an exclusive 20% off the RRP when you buy it directly from the Pen and Sword website. Just quote WOMEN20, that's all capitals, women 20 at the checkout join us next week when we'll be talking to rebecca Riddell about her book 1666 plague war and hellfire also don't forget to like share retweet and follow or just get in touch with us um, you can follow us on twitter at khaki malarkey and until next time i'm phoebe style i'm zach white and i'm olivia smith thank you for listening and this is khaki malarkey signing off mm -hmm.